I don't know what we are. It's, uh, it's embarrassing for the whole thing. Freely Filtered, an FJC podcast. I'm your host, Joel Toff, but most people know me by my much cooler alter ego, Kidney Boy. This is the flagship podcast of the Nephrology Twitter Journal Club. We meet twice a month to summarize, analyze, and discuss the most recent discussions at NFJC. Hopefully, we can provide some insight into the studies that are driving nephrology forward. Today, I'm joined by the complete filtrate. Jenny? I am Jenny Lin. I tweet at Jenny J. Lin. I'm a physician scientist at Northwestern University. Swapnil? I'm Swapnil Harmath. I tweet as H. Swapnil, and I usually go by Swap. I'm a nephrologist at the University of Ottawa. Samira? I'm Samira Farouk. I tweet at SS Farouk. I'm a transplant nephrologist at Mount Sinai in New York City. And Matt? Hey, I'm Matt Sparks. I tweet at nephro underscore sparks. I'm a nephrologist and physician scientist at Duke University. Tonight, we're going to be talking about credence. This is probably the most important nephrology study in a generation. Before we dig into the background, let's have a few thoughts on why the nephrology community is just so excited about credence. Samira? I think it's fun to finally say that something worked. Yeah, nephrology is kind of the uh, specialty of negative trials, and we have a doozy of a positive trial here. I would also add it worked in so many different ways. So you had cardiovascular benefits, you had kidney benefits, and it was just amazing to see that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, in EBM, we're so used to finding angles on the study that may be a weakness here. And this was a study that uh, kind of any which way you cut it, it was positive. It was hard to find a, a, a negative aspect to this trial. It's been really exciting also for medical education, given the really elegant mechanism of the drug. And as we learn about it more, to really share that with all the trainees and to get them to share our excitement. Yeah, I absolutely agree, Samira. I remember that when I was an intern, I was at NKF. My program was actually nice enough to pay for me to go. And I got really excited about nephrology because I went to a bardoxalone methyl poster before the <laughs> negative trial. And then I matched nephrology and then the you know bardoxalone methyl trial happened and we didn't get any anything for a little while, but I do think that this will reinvigorate the workforce. Yeah, I, that's such a funny memory to think about Bardoxalone because, you know, that's how desperate we were for a win that th when this drug had a positive finding on a, I think it was a phase two trial, it ended up getting published in New England Journal of Medicine and people went kind of crazy for that drug. And then, uh, and then to watch it all explode when Beacon got uh, published was just disappointing. Absolutely. The other thing that excites me is that the mechanism of action is also right in the kidney. And I think that's really cool that, you know, if you talk about how it works, majority of the effects are actually happening in the tubules and the vasculature. So I think that's really exciting. Maybe we'll get to this later, but the name of the drug, the flozin part comes from fluorazin, which is isolated from the apple bark. So I think now there's real truth to an apple a day keeps nephrologists away. <laughs> 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 that's I awesome. think that's true. <laughs> uh, you know, with, to riff on the fluorosin, I went and, and searched Twitter to find out how many people have been talking about fluorosin, which is a sort of a, it does block SGLT2, but also SGLT1. It's pretty potent. And it went back, Brent Wagner was tweeting about it back in 2016. And he has a great uh, schematic from Homer Smith's The Kidney from 1958 that shows giving this drug to I don't know if it's humans or dogs, probably some animal, and and, and just really showing, and for the first time, how how it changes um, GFR. So Swapnil, you didn't say anything. Yeah, I mean, you are, you guys all covered it, but also this credence wasn't new, right? So Empire Egg also showed a signal, Canvas showed the same thing. So I think this was the final nail in the coffin, or you know, the final proof that we wanted with Empire Egg. You know, it was such a they say it was a pre-specified secondary outcome, but the first paper doesn't even talk about kidneys. And with Canvas, there was the amputations that really overshadowed the positive result. With Credence, it was such a clean result, right? It was positive. It was unquestionably positive. There was no doubt about it. And the adverse effect data, I mean, I'm getting ahead of myself, but it was so reassuring. So it was an undeniably positive trial. 
Yeah, that's actually a great way to start this discussion. I just want to kind of frame the background of this study. Credence is kind of the uh, the capstone of a series of studies that have investigated this class of drugs, these SGLT2 inhibitors. And these drugs were, I think, introduced in 2011 was uh, when these drugs were first introduced, really to no fanfare whatsoever. These are, uh, they were introduced as uh, anti-hyperglycemic drugs. They block sodium uh, glucose reabsorption in the proximal tubule, which is, right, if you were going to list the 50 ways you were going to lower hyperglycemia, this would be the 50th way you'd come up with. It's just a very obtuse way to lower glucose. We're just going to stop reabsorption in the kidney. I remember when I heard about this mechanism of action, I just kind of rolled my eyes. Couldn't believe this would this would work. And I think that was right. Like when you looked at the results in terms of the traditional outcome for these drugs, which is effect on A1C, they're pretty lousy drugs. Usually they'll drop that A1C about half a point early on. And the longer you're on them, that effect seems to attenuate and go away. So I think by the end of uh, EMPA-REG, which was uh, the first really important outcome trial, I think the difference in A1Cs was about 0.3 between placebo and, um, and pagliflozin. And so you have a drug that had very little enthusiasm, didn't look like it was very good, but one of the requirements of the FDA, a modern requirement of the FDA is these drugs had to had to assure uh, the FDA that there was no cardiovascular side effects. And so the study was implemented to look to see if there was excess cardiovascular disease compared to placebo, and all of the SGLT2 inhibitors had to go through that. In fact, all the anti-diabetic drugs now have to do that. And that study was Empareg outcome. So when that first study came out, it was a cardiovascular uh, non-inferiority study showing that this drug was safe, and it actually showed a reduction of all-cause mortality, hazard ratio 0.68 compared to placebo, and cardiovascular mortality, hazard ratio 0.62, just absolutely uh, uh, blew away expectations. I remember when this came out, the headline was, this is the first drug ever in diabetes that's been shown to reduce mortality. And when I read that, I just, I was shocked. I couldn't believe, like, of all the drugs we've had for diabetes, insulin, metformin, sulfonylureas. I couldn't believe that none of them had ever shown a mortality benefit. And I think a lot, largely that's because we hadn't forced them to look for mortality benefit. Maybe there's one there, maybe there's not. But here was the first one that was able to show that. And that was really striking to me. And part of me kind of figured that, well, you know, that's a really impressive result, but it probably will be overturned in a subsequent study. And then the follow-up study was Canvas. Now, Canvas is a um, is a different molecule. Instead of empagliflozin, this was um, canagliflozin. This also showed a similar uh, mortality benefit. In Canvas, they looked at um, composite outcome of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, and non-fatal stroke, and they showed a reduction of 4.6 events per thousand patient years, which was highly significant with canagliflozin. So absolutely repeated the shockingly effective results of Empareg outcome with a separate molecule, same mechanism. And again, you know, it started to really kind of solidify this idea that these drugs had a cardiovascular benefit. More interesting or as interesting or just as important to nephrologists was a signal in both of these two outcome trials Empareg and uh, Canvas, that there was a reduction in uh, progression of diabetic kidney disease. So in Empareg, it was actually a follow-up publication that looked at renal outcomes. And this was, um, it was a pre-specified outcome, but it was not their primary outcome. There was a cardiovascular study. But when they looked at renal outcomes, the primary outcome for that aspect was a progression to macroalbuminuria doubling of serum creatinine, initiation of dialysis, or death from renal disease. And they had a phenomenal uh, hazard, a relative risk of 0.61 for that outcome. So it was a 13% with bagliflozin versus 19% with, with the control drug or placebo. And then in uh, Canvas, they also looked at renal disease. Again, the primary outcome was cardiovascular, but they looked at progression to albuminuria, and that was dramatically reduced with canagliflozin, has a ratio of 0.73. And they had a composite outcome of a 40% reduction in EGFR, need for dialysis, death from renal causes. And they had a, a whopping change from 9 per 1,000 patient years to 5.5 
per thousand patient years, so almost a 30%, 40% reduction in that composite outcome. The primary criticism of these is both of those studies were designed for cardiovascular disease. So they were enriching their population for people with cardiovascular disease, but not necessarily renal disease. So their GFRs tend to be very high. I think the average GFR with canagliflozin in the Canvas studies was 76, and their albuminuria was very low. So in Canvas, the average albuminuria was 12 milligrams per gram. So these are patients that when they entered the trial had a very low risk of progression of renal disease. It's impressive that we were able to minimize that risk. We still want to minimize that in any place we want. But the real question that was left after these two studies is if you did a, stu a study that was primarily focused on renal outcomes, would you be able to pull the same rabbit out of the hat? And this is what Credence was designed to do. This is a study that really looked at patients with a high risk of diabetic kidney disease. Great intro, Joel. If I could add, there was a third cardiovascular trial, uh, and and you're absolutely right. You know, it has passed under the radar. We, even on FJC, we discussed Empareg and we discussed Canvas, but we didn't discuss Declare Timi, which was actually the largest of the three trials with 17,000 patients. And the renal outcomes uh, in that trial also were similar. The hazard ratio was about 0.76 for the similar composite renal outcomes. It, it was a lower risk population, even from a cardiovascular vascular standpoint and from a renal standpoint where they had a GFR of 85. They, I, don't, I didn't even find the ACR, uh, so I suspect uh, very few patients had uh, proteinuria. And, and the second aspect, if I could add, is that credence, you know, you might think that Empareg, the, the finding from Empareg was sort of serendipitous. Yes, some people had said even before, you know, with TGF and stuff, there might be a signal, but it came as a surprise to the community. But credence was started before the Empareg positive results came out. You have to congratulate the authors on being, the investigators on being bold enough to take that uh, chance to design a renal study before the results, the first positive results from Empire came out. Did they have proteinuria data? Like why, why did they think it would be so effective for renal disease if they, didn't, if they hadn't been able to see these big studies before? There was a lot of theory, right, with the TGF. My first HEKD blog is on SGLT2 inhibitors in 2014 before Empiric came out. And a lot of people were talking. I'm sure Jenny and Matt will talk about the mechanism. And there was a speculation that these drugs might be good for the kidneys. I wanted to make one comment about the background. And, and I think that... A lot of people say, well, why weren't we excited when the IMPA study came out with impagliflozin? And I think the reason why we were sort of a little bit skeptical because the endpoints of the kidney endpoints were related to worsening of albuminuria, which basically was the definition of going from micro to macro albuminuria. And then the other was, and there was a post hoc renal composite outcome. So I think we wanted hard outcomes. We wanted primary outcomes and those still really like ESRD, we wanted to see um, that outcome was very important. And so, uh, Swap, can you comment on that? Like the 300 threshold, like they're basically saying some patients went from under three to over three, and then... Yeah, I'm looking at the impagliflozin and renal outcomes right now. So what you're talking about, the, the development of macroalbuminuria right. in placebo was 16% versus 11% with impagliflozin. But if exactly. you look at the hard outcome of renal replacement therapy, it was 0.6% with with placebo versus 0.3% with impagliflozin. Just a fraction of a percent of patients reaching that really patient-oriented outcome. And we have been burnt with proteinuria before, right? Um, exactly. So that that was why we were sort of, we were happy that it looked like it was beneficial and the EGFR data over time appeared to be improved with the SGLT2 inhibitor, but we didn't have the, how many patients were ended up on dialysis in a high risk population that had a lot of proteinuria and also diminished kidney function. Yeah. And on, on proteinuria, it would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, there was an NKF report in AJKD, which talked about proteinuria being a surrogate outcome that we should accept. Uh, they, they really did a thorough job. Uh, and typically, there is someone on Twitter who doesn't agree with that. So in this case, there is uh, Scott Brimble's fellow. I think he's now a nephrologist, Lonnie Pine. He had a he has a tweet thread. Uh, if you go on his profile, it's still his pinned tweet, which breaks down all the facts, you know, that in these trials, for example, the proteinuria and, and nephroprotection doesn't actually match up. But if you look at the dual RAS blockade trials, right, that's the biggest one where you saw a convincing reduction in proteinuria uh, with the combined uh, ACE inhibitor and ARB use. And it was not accompanied by a real protection in, in uh, outcomes. Not nearly the amount of excitement here if they had stopped with a change in proteinuria. Like the fact that they 
did the right study and they look for hard outcomes is super important. I think that's actually a pretty good time to let's let's go through the methods. Samira? Uh, so let's go through the nuts and bolts of this study uh, before we jump into the very exciting mechanism and result. Uh, so this was a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial, and notably it was actually an event-driven trial, which is different from the classic time-driven trial, which means that the study was driven by occurrence of the primary outcome rather than being a f- having fixed observed time. And so the primary outcome in this study was a composite of progression to end-stage kidney disease, doubling of serum creatinine, and kidney or cardiovascular related death. Patients were enrolled from 34 countries worldwide, including North, Central, and South America, Europe, Asia, Australia, New Zealand, which is in the continent of Oceania, which I learned today, and South Africa was the only country uh, included from Africa. And so just briefly, the patients that they enrolled were all type 2 diabetics with an A1C of 6.5 to 12%, and a special shout out to Germany, whose criteria was 6.5 to 10.5%, and this was actually due to a regulatory request from Germany. These patients had GFRs of anywhere between 30 and 90, and the goal enrollment was about 60% of CKD stage 3 at entry of the study. These patients had albuminuria of 300 milligrams per gram to 5 grams per gram. And to me, the exclusion criteria which stood out the most were any cardiovascular events within the last three months, any history of New York Heart Association heart failure class 4, and potassium over 5.5. They also excluded those on dual RAS blockade or any individuals that were taking the direct renin inhibitor aliscarin. So do you think, is the reason they excluded the heart failure patients is because the, and the coronary disease patients is that those patients have a strong indication to be on SGLT and it was actually unethical to give them placebos? I think that's one way. And I think another way to look at it could be that they may have in one way achieved the primary outcome already before the study even started. I guess it couldn't be the ethics because they didn't they, they didn't have the results of uh, Empereg or Canvas when they designed this trial, right? Uh, no, they started enrolling in 2014. Uh, and it may have been that they said, hey, that's the cardiovascular trial. This is the renal trial. The, the canvas was the cardiovascular trial and Credence is the kidney trial. And did you did you mention the uh, potassium of 5.5 was another exclusion uh, yeah, factor? Yeah, What's the story there? Why, why are they excluding hyperkalemia? You know, I, I think that's a interesting point. I think one possibility could be that they would just wanted to take out any potential additional adverse effects. If these people developed worsened kidney failure, the potassiums got worse, and that ended up being an indication for dialysis. That could be kind of a way to get the primary outcome, but not really assessing the efficacy of the drug. Yeah, but this is a drug that we know people are going to get a reliable drop in renal function when they start the drug, I don't know, what, 5 or 7% when they start the drug, and probably they didn't want to risk putting those patients into a, a position where they would have uh, an adverse event. I agree. What about the uh, ALDO antagonist? Why, why no ALDO antagonist for these patients? I think, again, similarly, the looping in with the potassium exclusion criteria, I think patients that were on those may have been at higher risk for developing hyperkalemia, again, putting them closer to an indication for dialysis. Yeah, they had all the patients had to be on an ACE or an ARB, right? So it is dual RAS blockade in another way. Uh, I think all of us pretend that you know, I won't combine an ACE with an ARB, but when I'm combining an ACE with spironolactone, that's fine. Uh, I don't think that's true. We don't have any hard outcome data on kidney outcomes with uh, combining an ACE or an ARB with spironolactone. It is my favorite drug. I Don't get me wrong, but I'm not sure uh, that adding spironolactone is as benign as we pretend it is. Samir, do you add uh, ACEs and aldactone together? I think I have done that, but I've never thought about it as dual RAS blockade, but I guess it is. Yeah, I do also, Matt. I don't believe that spironolactone is part of the RAS cascade, so... Um, <laughs> uh, shout out to uh, Brian Bird, Matt Luther. So I, I will do it because it's... Yeah, I don't consider it in the same... But I, you know, watch for hyperkalemia, and I think it's exactly right. Like You're already adding a, a med that's in study that has a very similar action to these in, in the afferent and efferent arterials, so you want to make sure that you are going to exclude any sort of side effect that might have occur. I mean, does that introduce some bias given that people with diabetic nephropathy are at increased risk for distal RTAs? So you're missing a big 
a population? I I, I do mix ACEs and aldactone together or ARBs and aldactone together. And I kind of, I'm worried on the day when somebody finally publishes the outcome data on that, because given the track record of ACE and ARB and ACE and direct renin inhibitor, I am very nervous that it will be detrimental to the patients. But usually these are patients that I can't get to blood pressure goal otherwise. In terms of causing um, uh, some bias, I think it's just, it's not, I'm not sure if it's biased so much as it's just a population that wasn't studied, right? This is just, you know, these patients would have been randomized to either placebo or, or drug, and we don't know. You can't say whether the drug would work in that situation, though, given the location of the uh, defect in uh, distal RTA being distal and the mechanism of action here being proximal, my sense is it probably works just fine in that population. Do we know that those patients with uh, distal RTAs in the setting of diabetes, whether or not they do worse? My feeling is they are the worst of the worst usually. These are patients that have pretty significant end organ damage if they're getting RTA. They tend to have a lot of proteinuria. They tend to uh, have retinopathy. They, these are usually pretty sick people. So I guess in some sense, they are kind of selecting for the less sick of the overall pop, uh, diabetic nephropathy population. I mean, I would agree with that. Yep. So uh, they took this group of type 2 diabetics and randomized them by GFR categories. So for example, 30 to 45, 45 to 60. And these groups were randomized to either 100 milligrams of canagliflozin or the placebo. And so you may remember the dose of 300 from the prior CANA trials, but they actually purposely chose this lower dose to minimize the risk profile that was seen with the 300 milligram dose. And for me, these placebo-controlled trials, I always find it very interesting how they actually set up the placebo. And so in this trial, they use this technique of over-encapsulation, which is a pretty quick, low-cost technique in which the study drug and the placebo is actually encapsulated in a hard gelatin capsule that essentially dissolves. And so that's a pretty easy way to make sure that your placebo and study drug groups don't know what they're taking. In Empareg, they used two different doses of empagliflozin plus the placebo, and there was really no dose response that you could detect between, I think it was- uh, 10 and 25. 10 and 25, yeah. So the study started out with a screening period, which included a two-week placebo trial to essentially make sure that those that were enrolled could actually keep up with a daily pill regimen, and only those that could take at least 80% of the placebo, they did a pill count to confirm this, those patients were included. And the screening period, which could have been up to 10 weeks, was really utilized to optimize the medical care from a diabetic and cardiovascular standpoint to make sure that patients were on single RAS blockade for at least four weeks or more. So getting into the actual study itself, um, in addition to the study drug or the placebo, all patients were given baseline what they called background care. Uh, the glycemic management was left up to the caring physician. All the sites were informed biannually of how they were doing with patients meeting goals for glycemic control, systolic blood pressure targets, and being on certain cardiovascular medications. And so I'll wrap up the methods with uh, some numbers pulled from their uh, protocol paper that was published uh, before the results were. So they really had projected the study to go on for about five and a half years with a planned enrollment of 4,200 type 2 diabetics. And so as we'll hear in a minute, they actually ended up enrolling 4,400 patients between 2014 and 2017. So I mentioned 844 observed events, and they had a pre-planned interim analysis that was done when they reached 405 patients, and that kind of brings us to the results. That's 400, 400 to 500 events? Uh, the interim analysis was planned once events were observed in 405 patients. 405. Uh, as Samira mentioned, they did recruit uh, 4,401 patients, which is not unusual. You often recruit slightly more because there'll be some loss to follow up. And in the multicenter trial, you know, the recruitment stops at one. By the time they decide to stop the recruitment, everyday patients are being recruited. So that, that's completely legit. The uh, placebo run-in also, you know, just to clarify, some people uh, don't like a run-in period. Like Vinay Prasad has railed on Twitter about run-in periods. And, and But this was a placebo run-in period, as Joel made the point during the chat. If you have an active drug run-in period, what can happen is patients who have side effects, they stop taking the drug and then they are excluded from the main trial. That will mean you have patients, uh, a population of patients who would have adverse effects are not included in the trial. Uh, and the drug may look good. Uh, in the real world, 
you are not excluding those patients. You don't know who's going to have a bad outcome, who's going to have an adverse reaction. So by having an active drug run-in, you may exaggerate the benefits of a drug. And the run-in, it was placebo and blinded, for, at least for the patients, right? The patients had no idea whether they were getting, you know, uh, canagal flows in or placebo at that time. Absolutely. So, so that was, a, I think it was a pretty standard and uh, a good way to do things. Don't these placebo trials measure how good their blinding is? Don't they usually do, they ask the patients, do you think you're on study drug or not? Isn't that like usually a, a, a policy in these RCTs? Did, I don't, did anybody see that? I didn't see that data mm-hmm. when I read the article. I didn't see that, but I've definitely seen that in other similarly designed trials. I wonder. I wonder how well, how successful their blinding yeah, was. Yeah, being. Um, I, 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 uh, <laughs> well, if you all you need to do is taste your pee. It's very simple. I, I can't believe patients were doing that uh, in the olden days. Nephrologists did that, right? So, uh, but Aaron, does it really matter here since your outcomes are pretty hard? Yeah, that's true. Objective outcomes. So, getting back, uh, let's talk about the table one before uh, the fact that the trial, uh, the outcomes. So, they had uh, four thousand four hundred patients, about twenty two hundred. If you're talking about table one, you're definitely talking to Swapnil. No one <laughs> likes table one and figure one more than Swapnil. And in this case, the figure one is actually the figure S1. Make I know, sure that must have killed yes. you. Yes. <laughs> read, read the supplement, guys. <laughs> it didn't even make the article. This is the supplement. <laughs> the supplement was where I found all those countries. Exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of good, uh, good data in the supplement. You read the supplement before you read the discussion. So the age was roughly 60 years, uh, 60. 5% were men uh, and 35% were women. Uh, people have commented about the fact that only 5% of the population was black, but keep in mind that the study had few patients you know, South Africa and uh, I think US were the two countries where they may have had substantial black population. So so that's not um, completely out of the ordinary. It's it's interesting to me that race, race or ethnic group did not break down Hispanics because that's a population that tends to have pretty severe diabetic nephropathy and they did recruit people from Central America and South America where you expect that they would have a high rate of those, of those patients. It would have been interesting to break that out. Right. I think there is something in the slide set that the George Institute put out. They do go into that and there was really not much of an interaction there in the outcomes. But I'm not sure it was Hispanic, uh, but there is uh, some ethnicity breakdown there that we can look at again. Uh, The duration of diabetes was about 15 years and going a little bit deeper into that diabetes, the hemoglobin A1C was about 8%. If we look at the drugs that were used, about two-thirds of the patients were on insulin. Uh, Only a quarter of patients, maybe about 25 to 29% were on sulfonylureas. uh, And about 58% were on metformin. Uh, this did cause some stir in the EU chat where they were saying, you know, it should be 100%. All of them should be on metformin. But again, this was uh, this is true in UK. Uh, Laurie Tomlinson quoted a study showing that in the UK, it's about 80% of all diabetics go on metformin. But that's not true of the rest of the world, right? In the US, the metformin uh, use below GFR of 60 was approved, what, a year or two ago, something like that. Um, so uh, in many parts of the country, metformin would not have been the standard of care. So that is well, and they're recruiting all the way down to 30%. I think a lot of us start getting a little nervous about uh, metformin when you get down below 35. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, even if it was allowed, we start getting nervous about that. What does make it into the table one is that uh, history of amputation was prior amputation at baseline was seen in about 5% of patients. Uh, they were recruited in this trial. Now, remember that the results of Canvas were not available when uh, credence was started. So I guess that's one reason why these patients would have come in. And as part of the what they did was when in 2016 the results of canvas came out there was a amendment to the study and they said hey now we look at the legs of every patient we examine the legs and if there is you know skin breakdown there are ulcers you uh, think about stopping the drug so that was an amendment that was put in place in 2016 after the results of canvas came out Um, the gfr was about 56 uh, which is much lower than declared which was 85 and empareg and canvas where the gfr was about 75 76 and lastly proteinuria so the median acr was about 900 uh, overall so uh, far more proteinuria than uh, we saw in the other trials and if you break down that further about 10 percent of patients had nephrotic range albuminuria Uh, about 77 percent so three quarters of them had non-nephrotic macro albuminuria and only about 10 percent had only micro albuminuria so these were you know, these are the kind of patients I think we see as nephrologists. Are we still allowed to use those terms microalbuminuria and macroalbuminuria? Haven't those been banned? Then we're just supposed to give the number? <laughs> yes. Next thing you know, Swapnil's going to start talking uh, end-stage renal disease. 
I love asking medical students if they think microalbumin is tiny albumin. It's very small. <laughs> very, very small. <laughs> very small albumin. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay. Earlier, Joel said. Um, he renin, said renin. So yes, he did not say renin. We're, all, we're okay. He said renin in a bit. Yeah. Uh, you're right. I should. I, I should be flayed. <laughs> now swapped it. Was there any mention of ejection fraction or heart failure? Uh, true. So about fifteen percent of patients had uh, heart failure. Uh, about half of them had history of cardiovascular disease. Uh, but I didn't see ejection fraction uh, specifically anywhere. Almost all the patients had hypertension, and uh, almost all you know they had to be on a renin angiotensin system inhibitor. So most of them were on the ACE or an ARB. And uh, of interest, about 25 to 30% of patients stopped the drug by the time the follow-up was completed. But the number of patients who stopped the drug was greater in the placebo arm than in the CANA uh, arm. So it was about 5% different. 5% more were likely to stop the drug in uh, placebo. And jumping to the main outcomes. Hold on a second. Do we have the drum roll? So the outcomes, uh, as Samira had said, they needed 800 and um, the, the trial was powered for 844 outcomes, but the interim analysis was done when 405 outcomes. And when they did the uh, interim analysis, there was such an overwhelming benefit that the uh, DSMC, the, the uh, Data Safety Monitoring Board said, hey, told the steering committee we have to stop the trial. By the time all the data was collected, they ended up with more than 400 events, so they had about 500 events. So it looked like they they had predetermined how low the p-value had to be to stop the thing at the interval. I think it was a p-value of 0. 0.001 exactly. to stop it at, at the interim, at the interim stopping right. point, which I think is... Like I hadn't seen that uh, published prospectively before, probably because I don't read the methods very carefully. And, and they ended up with a p-value of 0.00001 when they adjudicated and you know get all the events together. And I think it's it's legitimate. We can if we can digress a bit into the early stoppage. Uh, some people don't like it, but if you're going to look at the data, you have to decide what you're going to do about it. But once you decide to look at it, and the the, the trial is powered for that the fact that you're going to look at it, uh, you have to make a decision. If you see such an overwhelming benefit, it is unethical to continue enrolling patients when you know into placebo once you know that canaglyphosin is showing an overwhelming benefit. The the downside, of course, of, of stopping a trial early is that it is stopping early for the primary endpoint, not for all the secondary endpoints. And uh, no trial is powered for secondary endpoints, but of course, you're going to get less secondary endpoints. So all those analysis are going to be uh, not as powered. Also, you get less adverse effects because not enough uh, exposure has been. So that's that's something to keep in mind, though. The, the, it doesn't take away from the uh, legitimacy of the results. It's just that we have less power for some of the results. So the primary out, uh, composite outcome, which was doubling of the usual one, the doubling of serum creatinine and stage kidney disease. Uh, I'm sorry, Matt, they call it renal death and cardiovascular death. Uh, <laughs> the, the hazard ratio was 0. 0.7. It's time to get everybody on board with this. Okay. Uh, so the uh, hazard ratio was 0.7 uh, with a 95% confidence interval of 0.6 to 0.8 in favor of CANA. If we break down into all the, you know, the sub parts of these primary composite endpoint, they're all roughly, you know, you can nitpick about 0.68 and 0.74, but they're roughly a 30% relative risk reduction for all of them. For the secondary outcomes as well, uh, you see a consistent benefit ranging from roughly 0.7 to 0.8 for most of the outcomes. Uh, specifically, it's uh, useful to look at the all-cause death, which is point, uh, the point estimate is 0.83. The 95% confidence intervals just goes over 1, 1.02. I think the useful thing to do here is to compare it to kind of our gold standard, which is the ARB trials. So in IDNT, for their primary outcome, which is a doubling of serum creatinine dialysis or death from renal disease, they had a relative risk of 0.8 with herbosartan. And with renal and losartan, they had a relative risk of 0.84. So this, this, this drug is significantly more powerful than those drugs with a very similar population. Exactly. And and this drug is added to patients who are on an ACE or an ARB. And this is additive. That's right. This is on top of the benefit that they are presumed to be getting from the angiotensin receptor blocker. And if you look at the GFR decline in IDNT, it was about uh, the 1 to 1.3 slower with irbesartan. In renal, it was uh, about 0.8 ml per minute 
per year slower and in this case it is about 1.5 ml per minute per year slower so kind of a similar or maybe a little bit better of gfr slope uh, with credence interestingly i hadn't noted that but in idnt uh, the all cause death was similar with irbisartan or placebo yeah. yeah it was about 15% in all three or and the amlodipine which was the third arm no one talks about when you say that nobody talks about that amlodipine that's because you weren't around when that when that got published ed lewis took so much for having the third arm not be an ACE inhibitor, right? Because it was an angiotensin receptor blocker versus amlodipine versus placebo. And everybody's like, well, why didn't you throw it? Why wasn't one of the arms an ACE inhibitor? So we could have fi- figured out that that also works. Absolutely. Um, uh, uh, there was a uh, lot uh, of criticism. Yeah. So I was saying that in, in renal, I, I found out, heard about these studies. I hadn't read them closely. I didn't know that renal was stopped early. And the, re- the reason renal was stopped early was because hope came out. Yep. They thought it was unethical to deny anybody an ACE exactly. inhibitor. Yeah, exactly. And they got published in the same article and you had one article that goes to completion and didn't stop early. And another article said, hey, we had to stop early because it was unethical to complete. And everybody started looking at uh, Ed Lewis going, well, why didn't you stop early? I think it was pretty uncomfortable for Ed Lewis at the time. As it has been uncomfortable for the sprint authors. Moving on. So uh, subgroups, a lot of people have commented, oh, the drug seemed to work better with the GFR being lower or with proteinuria being higher. Look at the interaction p-values, please. Uh, I think I ranted about it on Twitter and I'm ranting again today is that don't look at the confidence intervals that, hey, it crosses one in some subgroup. These subgroups are not powered. Uh, so you should not look at subgroups that way. There was a consistent benefit in all the subgroups. So why do they always show us so many subgroups when... We see a difference and then everyone says it's not powered. Absolutely. I, I, I was thinking along that way is that, you know, don't show those forest plots. Just show the p-value for interaction. Don't show the subgroup. Just put them in the supplement. Right. Right. No one reads the supplement. Caution. Don't look, but here they are. No, but I think, I think what you want to see is you want to see them all on the same side of the line. Right. Even if it's not powered, you want to see that the trend was, well, it's not powered, but it's going the right. same direction. We're really looking for interactions more than actually crossing the line, right? Exactly. And, and the fact that the uh, 95% confidence intervals overlap. So they are sort of similar. They are not heterogeneous. So if, if you have two populations with the, P, the 95% intervals not even overlapping, that suggests that, you know, the effect is different in one subgroup versus the other. And that was not seen in any subgroup in this study. So, you know, let's not even think about it. Stop thinking about subgroups what's next <laughs> so the big one was the adverse effects right so the, the biggest headline uh, result you want to look at with cana is the amputations as you remember in canvas there was this huge black box warning that came out even before the study was published that amputations were up they were about twice as more common with canaglyphosin compared to uh, placebo there has been a lot of swirling conversations about that uh, because no such signal was seen in mpareg uh, but again in mpareg they did not look at it prospectively. They went back and looked at it. In Canada, the DSMB had flagged it, so it was adjudicated and looked far more closely. Uh, there was a large observational study in BMJ around the same time as Declare came out, which showed that perhaps it was a class effect uh, because more amputations were seen in all three groups. Again, but this is from a, not an RCT, it's from an observational study from Scandinavia. So what happened in Credence? There was no difference in amputations. So the rates of amputations were 123 per 1,000 patient years in CANA versus 11.2 per 1,000 patient years in placebo. No difference. Now, again, you have to keep in mind is that there was an amendment. So they were looking at the patient's legs and they were stopping the drug in case there was a suspicion something was going on. So more attention was being paid to patient's legs. It's something to keep in mind when we talk about using the drug in real life. Well, and the other thing that they were, they were using a third of the dose that they used in Canvas. So maybe this side effect is dose related. And when you cut it back down, you don't see the signal so much. Quite possible. So I guess we should stick to 100 milligrams. And one other thing about the amputations is just looking at the absolute rate of amputations. So in Canvas, the absolute rate with canagliflozin was 6 per uh, 1,000 patient years. And here we're talking about 12 per 1,000 patient years. So, you know, kind of newsflash, patients with diabetic nephropathy have sick blood vessels and are at higher risk for amputations. Absolutely. So uh, it's always hard, right? So the observational studies I quoted, which show a higher amputation rate, uh, it's hard to prove causation. And, and these adverse effects are always tricky because RCTs are not powered for adverse effects. Adverse effects are not as common as the, you know, efficacy outcomes. And I think it's, it's appropriate that it's something that you should keep in mind, something that you should caution patients about, and something 
that you should you know look for and try to uh, prevent and ameliorate as much as you can moving on hyperkalemia was actually lower with canna so the rates were 29.7 per thousand patient years versus 36.9 in placebo with a hazard ratio of 0.8 so 20% uh, relative risk lower uh, of hyperkalemia similarly acute kidney injury was also lower uh, with canna i'm not sure how you would explain that and uh, of course the the 95% confidence intervals do cross over for aki but aki risk was lower which is important to keep in mind when people talk about all the sick day rules but as samira pointed out during the nfjc chat perhaps the sick day rules are more important for the last one which is the diabetic ketoacidosis so there were more diabetic ketoacidosis events with canna 11 events versus one event so 10 extra events hmm. in 4000 patients It's very very small absolute risk increase but at the same time this was a trial so patients are being more followed more closely if something happens you know action is going to be taken to prevent bad things from happening which may not happen in real life so it's it's appropriate that uh, euglycemic decay is higher and it's something you have to Yeah, think about. Was there any other color given on the euglycemic decay? Because uh, I know in uh, in the previous two uh, RCTs, they commented that those were more common early on. So within the first couple of weeks of starting the drug, they were seeing more of this. Did they ha- make any comments like that? Uh, I didn't see about timing, uh, but they did talk about. So so you have to go to the last page of the supplement. Yeah, I don't even read the first page of the supplement. <laughs> okay, so that's what I, that's what I go to you Guys, for. Guys, you have to read the supplement. <laughs> so so the uh, the 12 events that they talk about. Uh, 92% of them were on background insulin and 30% were on background metformin treatment they had diabetes for 23 years compared to the 15 years in the overall general population and um, and they had, two of them had actually had a previous history of diabetic ketoacidosis they could only identify precipitating factor for 10 uh, out of the 12 uh, patients so you know concurrent illness uh, reduction in insulin dose or drugs that can affect carbohydrate metabolism were identified in 10 out of uh, uh, the 12 events so i think that's something to keep in mind is that if your patient is vomiting uh, you know is sick Uh, they are at higher risk of having these things happen. Yeah, the longer vintage of uh, diabetes is also interesting because these patients may really have burned out their pancreas and really not be might not have endogenous insulin secretion. Did they check C-peptide levels? They did not, and and it's interesting, right? Should you be checking C-peptide levels, or should you be using some kind of surrogate to make sure that your patient is truly type two uh, and not type one, or you know the maturity onset diabetes of young or whatever? Another interesting. Uh, difference between the 100 milligram and 300 milligram tablets is that the 100 one is actually yellow and the 300 milligram is white so the 100 milligram has this addition of iron oxide yellow so it's probably not related to anything but kind of an interesting difference between the two Samira has wow. done a deep dive in capsulology. <laughs> that is a that, that supplemental dive. data. Just the dye that's on the goddamn pill. Unbelievable. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's, it's, it's deep down. into the supplemental it's, data right awesome. there. And they're both hemihydrates. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you, this podcast is free. We're telling you what the dye is made of, and we're not charging you a penny. <laughs> All right, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, and if you want to talk about the GFR and albuminuria so you know the GFR graph is something that is so pretty to look at uh, so you should all look at it just for that right it's the, it's a classic graph that you see with ACE inhibitors and ARBs there's an acute drop in GFR and then the GFR is more stable in the canna arm whereas in the placebo it keeps dropping um, so in fact if they give the numbers um, initially the drop was 3.7 in the canna versus 0.5 in the placebo but subsequently the slope is so slow that it's about uh, less than 2 in the canna versus minus 5 ml per minute per year in the placebo arm that's you know it's it's such a beautiful graph to look at yeah i'm nerdy 5 cc's per year sounds like a lot for a patient that's on a ras inhibition do you guys remember what the uh, intervention group loss was on uh, in renal or idnt so in renal it was about 4.4 uh, per year versus on placebo or with intervention uh, with losartan versus 5.2 oh so very, very consistent and um yeah Interesting. and in okay. idnt it was uh, 5.5 with uh, erbesartan versus 6.5 in placebo so these are beautiful drugs we should be using them there's no downside just put it in the water how how do they work though they're cool but why do they pervert why do they protect the kidneys 
So mechanism of action, this is where we're all waiting for. So if you've made it this far in the podcast, you're in for a treat. And actually, if you made it this far in the podcast, you really should move closer to work because you're just traveling. You're just taking <laughs> so way too long to get to work. Team, we're attacking this with Jenny Lynn. We're going to make sure that everyone understands how beautiful this drug is. So let's go through the mechanisms of action. So first, we need to know what in the world is an SGLT2 inhibitor and why should we care? So there's about six SGLTs or sodium glucose co-transporters. These are active co-transporters of sodium and glucose. However, two of which that are of importance for us to talk about, one is SGLT1 and the other is SGLT2. We've earlier in the podcast, if you can remember back then, <laughs> way back then. Florizin is a naturally occurring compound from apple tree bark and it inhibits SGLT1, which is expressed in the small intestine and in the latter part of the proximal convoluted tubule. SGLT2, however, is in the earlier proximal tubule and that is what is targeted by the, the flows and types of drugs. It's important because it does not inhibit the small intestine one, which has a side effect, or not always a side effect, an effect of having um, diarrhea. There are known mutations in these in, in humans, whereas you have a mutation SGLT1, it's typically a fatal mutation, and SGLT2 is more of a benign, and it causes familial renal uh, glucosuria. So let's talk about SGLT2 inhibitors. What is the mechanism? So uh, there was a lot of debate back and forth on the trial, and I felt a little offended personally. Why were you offended? <laughs> I was offended because I really like the hyper hyperfiltration theory as to what their mechanism, and this is sort of the mechanism that was first sort of discussed in the laboratories that it's like this sort of a great bench-to-bedside discovery. And I do agree that there's likely other mechanisms, but I do think this is a very important mechanism. So let's go through that. So hyperfiltration has been known to occur in diabetes. How it associates to um, decline of kidney function is not as robust as I had thought after looking at the literature, but it has been associated with that. So how these drugs work in diabetes, first, you have a scenario where glucose reabsorption occurs via SGLT2 in the early proximal tubule. And with that, you also reabsorb um, sodium. As the filtrate goes to the nephron, it reaches the macula densa, where the macula densa senses what's in the filtrate and notices that, hey, the sodium chloride concentration is low here. We need to send a signal back to the interglomerular hemodynamics. And that sense, what it does is vasodilates the afferent arterial. So as this occurs, you get hyperfiltration. You have more uh, pressure inside the glomerulus. And then later in the course, you also have changes in efferent arterial. And we all understand that ACE and ARBs, they target the renin-angiotensin system and primarily affect the efferent arterial. And in this study, we did have an effect. You know, these patients were on ACE inhibitors and ARBs. So what SGLT2 inhibition does is sort of breaks this cycle. And what it does is allow the glucose to go into the filtrate and the sodium so that on the other end in the macula densa, it's not sensing that low sodium chloride concentration. And therefore, you have the vasoconstriction of the afferent arterial decreasing the intraglomerular pr pressure and decreasing hyperfiltration. So that's really the, the big mechanism that, um, and, and I think the elegant reason why these drugs are so interesting because this effect has been seen. Okay. So I just want to make sure I got this straight, that when you have hyperglycemia, you're going to get enhanced glucose and sodium reabsorption in the proximal tubule. That's going to starve the macula densa so it looks like it has less. That doesn't just look like it actually will have less sodium traveling past that macula densa. And that's going to feed back on this, that parent glomeruli saying, hey, we better vasodilate the afferent arterial to restore sodium uh, perfusion of that kidney or that nephron. Is that right? That's correct. And that's going to increase your intraglomerular pressure. And that's the source of hyperfiltration. Right. And I think that the interesting about that is, so if you look at how ACE inhibitors and ARBs had worked previously to this study, where we, where we see this profound effect in the kidney is that the efferent arterial and vasodilating that is sort of a stopgap. So it's not fixing the proximal problem, whereas that it's the efferent arterial. So I think that's really cool is that if you can change or fix the problem at the efferent arterial, then maybe you don't even need to do anything on the efferent side. Or maybe there's a synergy where you can really lower the intraglomerular hemodynamics. So, but I think this gets the proximal cause. And, and is this the first drug that can constrict that afferent arterial? Can't we just use NSAIDs and get the same effect? Yeah, there are other drugs that, that have this effect. And that was brought up in the chat. Hey, what about 
NSAIDs, can they have the same effect? And that is true. However, just like any of these drugs, there are other effects of NSAIDs than just the afferent efferent arterial. For instance, the EP4 receptor uh, is present on macrophages. It's, it's present in the tubules. It's present in the endothelium. And so there's a, a lot of other effects that might actually override just the effect in the uh, macula densa. And presumably, if this is the mechanism, any other proximal tubule diuretic that would block sodium reabsorption in the proximal tubule would simulate the same kind of tubular glomerular feedback issue. So like acetazolamide, for example should flood your macula densa with sodium and cause your same blocking of hyperfiltration. Right. But you also look at SGLT2 inhibitors cause lower blood pressure. You know, what do NSAIDs do? Raise the blood pressure. I know that one. I got that one right <laughs> up for us. Uh, that's what I try to say is like, there's a lot of other effects. I want to interject because now I do think, you know, usually we start off every NFJC chat with, you know, declare our conflicts of interest, right? Uh-oh. And maybe you have a you know, scientific bias for why you favor this mechanism. Yeah, I mean, I I completely agree with that. And I think at at some point you have to go with what works. And what's more amazing (laughs) than, I mean, it's a glomerulus, right? We all love the glomerulus. It has to have a blood flow. I mean, and that's the beginning of the filtrate. So yes, I do admit (laughs) conflict of interest. However, it has not paid off yet. <laughs> okay, Jenny, tell right. us what the real answer is. Okay, so I think I think it's more nuanced than this. I do agree with Matt that there is probably tubular uh, tubuloglomerular feedback that is at work. But and I'll declare my conflict of interest in terms of research. I've trained in, in the cardiovascular space, and so I've kind of been spying on what the cardiologists do, and have learned that sometimes more crosstalk on the cardiorenal side can be informative. In this case, I also what I've also found interesting is that also you know, signals for HEFPEF, you know, being improved by these drugs. And, you know, it's not entirely clear why it wouldn't be completely just from a preload and afterload reduction. Uh, there have been some elegant basic science studies looking at bioenergetics as well. What is bioenergetics? What so, is that? So basically how the cells use energy fuel source in terms of how they power and run. So one thing that the myocardium and kidneys have in common, they basically require a lot of energy to work. And so for myocardium, uh, one of the thoughts was that uh, SGLT2 inhibitors end up putting people into ketosis. And so releasing a lot of ketone bodies in the circulation to make up for a little bit lower glucose. Um, And this may shift energy utilization enough where uh, they're providing an alternative fuel source for uh, cardiomyocytes that may otherwise undergo apoptosis or profibrotic pathways um, if there's other stressors that are not allowing them to utilize other energy sources like glucose or efficiently. Wait, I'm sorry. I, I just want to make sure I understand. We have basic science that says that ketones can be a better fuel source for heart and kidney than glucose? Uh, for heart. We don't have the data, I don't think, in kidney but for, Okay. For heart, we, we have... We data that says ketones can be superior to glucose for myocardial fuel. That is my understanding from looking through a little bit more cursory uh, review of the cardiology literature, but that is what I've been seeing. Okay, that's cool. And then so one of the other things is proximal tubule. So they use a lot of energy to reabsorb that glucose. Did anybody see those um, freeze fractured scanning electronic microscopes a few months ago? Some beautiful views of the proximal tubule. And it was, I couldn't believe how many mitochondria were just packed in there. They were awesome shots. They are very mitochondrial rich, like to the point where, remember when we were doing uh, NEFJC on single cell C sequencing before. Yeah. So like you have to identify cell types. And one of the things for quality control of single cell sequencing is to kick out cells that have too many mitochondrial reads. But for the kidney, for proximal tubule, you have to actually have a different threshold because there are so many mitochondria. You're going to lose reads for perfectly healthy cells that look like sick cells if you were going to um, be identifying a different type of cell type. And, you know, a lot of that work is actually in the glucose reabsorption. So if you're blocking that and allowing the kidney, basically, Catalan Sestak said, these being a beta blocker to offload the energy utilization for these cells. Are you trying to say I have to go with either Caitlin or Matt? Because I know which, which side I'm on in that case. One other thing that uh, Catlin had shown in a 2014 Nature's Medicine paper was that 
uh, defective fatty acid oxidation in proximal tubules actually increase renal fibrosis. In, and so if proximal tubular cells are not able to utilize energy efficiently, so whether that's glucose or fatty acids, then there is a signal for dedifferentiation, and that could be a primary mechanism driving renal fibrosis in the tubules. So yeah, so if you're, if you're basically lowering the amount of work the proximal tubule has to do, then maybe you're also um, de- you're also blocking or preventing the renal fibrosis pathways from being activated, or at least providing some sort of pop-off valve for that not to happen, which I think is really cool. You know, the other interesting thing is it finally takes the attention off of the glomerulus, and the glomerulus is getting way too much attention but, for but all the these years. We're looking where we should be looking the whole time, which is the tubules, <laughs> right? We, I mean, we always said that it's the interstitial fibrosis and the tubules that really predicts these renal outcomes. And then we would all look at the glomerulus to see what kind of pathology they had. Maybe the answer has been in the tubules the whole time. It'd be interesting to give mice some SGL2 inhibitors and do some different fibrosis models, see if there's any gross differences. Yeah, I suspect that those studies are being done. And then the other thing that was interesting in the cardiorenal perspective is that SGLT2s are not in cardiomyocytes. And so the signals that we're seeing in the HEFPEF studies, I'm not sure if there's some sort of cardiorenal crosstalk going on there, which would actually also be very interesting to look at. But you thought earlier you were saying that it could just be the change in the fuel source, even though if they don't have the SGLT2. Right. I was, uh, as I was looking for some background to look up the mechanism of action, there's a whole this interesting paper from, I don't know how, to, I never can say this journal name, Diabetologia. <laughs> Is that how you say it? I don't know. That's exactly how you say it. In fact, the editor always calls it diabetologia. That diabetologia published in 2018, and it looked at SGLT2 inhibitors in a mouse study. But basically what they showed is that some of these SGLT2 inhibitors can actually inhibit NHE1, so sodium hydrogen exchanger. And they did a lot of really interesting um, work to demonstrate that it can actually change the function of the myocardium. They specifically looked at empaglifosin, dipaglifosin, canaglifosin, and they have like 3D models of how it um, binds into the site. And so there is some discussion. And And during the chat, Charlie Thompson had tweeted us figure out about how um, NHE3 might be a unifying mechanism, or NHE1 in the heart, NHE3 in the in the uh, in the kidney. And it blocks both NH1, NH1, and interact with both. And so I don't, you know, I obviously this is something I didn't really know about till today. And but the, um, we'll, we'll put the paper in the show notes. People can take a look at it. Can you? Can someone give me a a, a quick refresher? Where is NH1 in the uh, N3 in the kidney? Oh, this NHE1 is in um, in the cardiac myocytes, and then NHE3 is a in the proximal tubule. And it's, it's is, a, is that the is that is that the primary st- uh, hydrogen ext- uh, secretion mechanism in the in the proximal tubule? So we plays you, a big role. Bicarb, you, yeah, you secrete does. hydrogen. Is that so, a sodium hydrogen? Uh, it, but this paper only looked at cardiac, so I'm not 100 percent sure how, how much it affects in the kidney. But they do. They, there's also if a it review. blocked that, we would expect to see significant metabolic acidosis, just like you would with acetazolamide. And I don't think anybody's commented on that. I can't. I can't imagine it's that dramatic of an effect in the kidney. Yeah. So I think these are talking about a variety of mechanisms that might affect. The, the last one I wanted to mention. There's a, a group that published a paper in JCI Insight that looked at direct podocyte effects of SGLT2 inhibitors. And so they demonstrated that a podocyte can express SGLT2. Um, However, the model they used was not a diabetes model. Uh, This was a protein overload model where they basically just give a mouse a huge uh, dose of bovine serum albumin or BSA. And uh, and this is a commonly used experimental model of glomerular basement membrane injury. And they looked at ACE inhibition versus dipagliflozin. And they have similar reductions in proteinuria than placebo. Glomerular lesions are, are less. If you look at the paper, you can see EM pictures. I thought that was pretty interesting. And maybe now some of the new trials that are coming out in non-diabetic CKD, and this could be one of the effects. Because if you think about the hyperfiltration model, which is what I went and talked about for a while and love a lot, um, is not going to be, you know, happening in some someone without diabetes. So I think that, um, but I guess lower glomerular pressures could be could be seen. So like direct photocyte energies 
hemodynamics, NHE3 and NHE1 inhibition, and then the hyperfiltration um, are all interesting ways these could work. Interesting. Exactly. Forget about podocytes. This is the rise of the tubules. Forget about podocytes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't even go over the weight loss. It's revenge of the tubules. The, the Come on. Weight loss, natriuresis. Anyway, there's a thread, the lower down in the thread that Charlie Thompson quotes the NHE. You know, so that thread has some of the most opinionated nephrologists on Twitter. It has got Scott Brimble, Roger Rodby, Jordan Weinstein, and Christos. You know, and Christos and Jordan are the, oh, wow. have been the cheerleaders of SGLT2 inhibitors forever. And Roger... What is Christos calling himself now? Dragon Slayer of diabetic nephropathy. <laughs> so so in that thread, um, uh, and Roger is needlessly needling them about, uh, oh, you don't know the mechanism. Really, how do they work? If you don't even know that, you know, does it matter? And and the last reply... We spent a solid 30 minutes talking yeah, about it. Yeah, and, and Jordan, but the final word, you know, and I share this attitude, right? Who cares? They work. Uh, so... Uh, uh, a clinical researcher yeah. right here. <laughs> I know, I, I'm being facetious. But Jordan's reply, I think, is nice, is that I think the mechanism of SGLT2 inhibitor is that their awesomeness reduces the shit of diabetes. That's all that matters. It's just, it's crazy to me that the most powerful medication we have in nephrology that we've discovered in the last 20 years, we have no idea how the thing works. Like that's, you know, it's, it's just, it's crazy. I would say it is important to understand the mechanisms because if we can start blocking other parts of the pathways, like there are some reasons for why people may not remain adherent to this particular medication. But if we can still target the correct pathways, we can actually tweak, perfect, uh, maybe lower some of the adverse effects. So there's still a lot of drug development to be done. Maybe the in, the NHE3 thing is important where we can target like that in the in the peripheral vasculature is not a good effect. Um, and you need to find a drug that doesn't do that. Uh, so I, I totally agree that mechanism of action is very important. And and as I mentioned in the chat, like a lot of people think we know how ACE and ARBs work, ACE inhibitors and ARBs work, but the, the truth of the matter is we, we don't know how those drugs work in kidney disease. So, and we're still finding things out every day. So it's exciting. Yeah. And even like, you know, subtle differences between CANA and EMPA, um, apparently, you know, CANA had worked better in the cardiovascular trials for uh, the black population and EMPA for the Asian population. And we know from uh, Plavix that there are some race-specific differences in how drugs are metabolized. And so even the formulations, maybe the dyes, <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know which dyes were used for each one uh, for EMPA, but... Um, Samira, what were the dyes on empagliflozin? We need to know that right away. <laughs> there were two different doses, 10 and 25 milligrams. Can we get the, uh, the dye, the, the, the dye difference on that? The whole list. <laughs> I want to know about the, the if the drugs were scored, is there a difference in the way they were scored and could that have a mechanism? All right, Joel, we've, we've gone over three hours now. Yeah, and I was being facetious about the mechanism of action, but I think the bottom line is, yes, we do care about the mechanism of action, but not knowing how they exactly work shouldn't stop us from using them. They work, so we should go ahead and use them. Uh, and thanks for pointing out the mycotic uh, infection. So the, the number of UTIs were not different, but indeed the, the mycotic genital infections were higher, even in men and women. Uh, the first author, Vlado Perkovic, who joined us for all three chats uh, on the flight. Which was impressive. It is extremely <laughs> impressive. You know, he was on a flight from Sydney to Vancouver to Calgary. Yeah, and, and, and uh, the first one was uh, during the flight. The second one was at the Vancouver airport. And the third one was uh, something like that. He was running to, you know, the, the, the flight to Calgary or something awesome like that. Anyway, so he pointed out that most of all of them uh, for the mycotic infections, they needed like a, a dose of an oral antifungal. So those were... You know, it's something, yes, it's important, but it wasn't a big deal and there were no lasting uh, repercussions. Uh, there were some comments from uh, Sarah Feiner that I just saw. She's a diabetologist in UK um, and she was sort of saying that a, about 10% of patients do not tolerate SGLT2 inhibitors, uh, but they're right in the get-go, right? They have these urinary symptoms. Uh, she was saying it's important to ask about their occupation, you know, like someone's a taxi driver or whatever, they are not going to uh, tolerate the diuretic effects. But more importantly, she said that 
we should not get anxious about the fact that these lower blood sugar the effect is very small uh, you don't need to worry about hey i'm starting a patient on canna so i should be uh, stopping some other drug you know i should be stopping their metformin or something that is not a concern that brings up another question though is and i've heard a little bit of buzz from the asn folks is sarah finer she's a diabetologist prescribing this but what's the role of the nephrologist um, especially as primary care physicians you know, they're the front lines. Are they going to start prescribing it? Or should we be managing the side effects and when to stop? And what should we be looking for as inpatient consultants seeing more and more patients come in? I would strongly argue that we should prescribe this, right? Like uh, the uh, hypoglycemic effect is like a side effect. These drugs protect the kidneys. So nephrologists should be using them. So yes, there are side effects. All drugs have side effects. These are not homeopathic. Yeah, I would only prescribe them for patients that didn't want to die. I would ask them in the review systems, do you want to avoid cardiovascular death? And if they did, do you want to avoid dialysis? If they do, do you want to avoid dialysis and death, then this would be a good drug for those patients. As a transplant nephrologist, I am dying to get some data on how these drugs will perform in our population and to see how bad the infections might be. But it's very tempting to kind of know this result and not be able to apply it to our population. Okay, let's wrap Let's wrap this thing up. Anybody have any, uh, let's go, go around the horn. Matt, you got some final thoughts? It's a new day. I'm so excited. Very good. Samira? I'm giving a talk to interns next week, and I think I may just scrap the whole thing and talk about this. Great. Swap. JC did that. JC Velez, he, he did exactly that. Uh, but... The, so the results came out on Sunday night uh, for Eastern time. And Monday morning, my first patient fit these criteria. I put him on canaglyphosin. Jenny? I think it's an exciting time to be in nephrology. And I hope that the, all the excitement from Credence carries forward and that there will be more discoveries and and more positive clinical trials like this. Yeah. I th- And I think one of the things that we didn't touch on here that is going to is the next wave of data on these SGLT2 inhibitors is we've talked about what a bad diabetic drug it is it has a very modest effect on the A1C people are now being randomized into trials that don't even have diabetes and this drug I expect to work just as well in people with no diabetes and that's really going to break this whole thing open so I think uh, at, we're just at the this is the beginning of the beginning of the SGLT2 story. And we got a lot of excitement ahead. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to the very end. You guys really need to move closer to work. It's way too long of a podcast. But, you know, I think we needed a too long podcast for Credence because this was a huge deal. Uh, thanks a lot. And until next week, uh, watch those potassiums. An apple a day keeps the nephrologist away. <laughs> <laughs>